Let us uh, begin with a word of prayer and seek our Lord and Savior. Dearest Father God, I thank you for your amazing grace. I thank you that you never leave us, you never forsake us. Your faithfulness is true and real forever and ever. We can rely on you, we can trust you. Your love is real, your love is real. Thank you, Lord. I pray that you would teach us here in your word today. And Lord, we thank you for all that you've done to provide for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is an interesting story, I believe, of God's sovereignty. Pastor John Anwucheka tells about watching the 2021 NCA, NC2A men's basketball championship game between who would know who played in the 2021 NCA championship basketball game? Couple. Who even won it? See, nobody even knows. See, it was Baylor versus Gonzaga. <clears throat> well, he was watching the game intently. Texting his friends as he watched, there came a time when Baylor took out one of its star players and Gonzaga started to make a run. Pastor John was infuriated. He was in a group chat saying, I can't believe they did that. Things are going to turn out bad. And then his friend said, what are you talking about? He's back in. And he then realized there was a lag in his Internet connection. As the game went on, the lag started to get worse. The announcer's voice would say, and he made the shot. But on the screen, the guy would be dribbling, and then he would shoot it, and then the shot went in. And John realized, oh, there's a lag in my connection. So he was so anxious about really wanting his team to win that when he discovered there was a lag in his connection, he didn't log out. You know you know how you log out and then log in. Hopefully, it'll catch up. He just let it stay there. Do you know why? Because John trusted the announcer's voice. In his words, he writes this. I didn't think he was going to lie. I know that his word preceded what would happen. So I let him speak and I waited. I didn't worry. I celebrated when he spoke, not when I saw what took place. The beauty of this story is that what we see lags behind what God is doing and what he has said. We can trust the voice of God, the word of God in the midst of what we're seeing today. We can hold on to the very truth of who God is. In the difficulty of this evil age, we can know that God does love you. His word is true. He will and does get his way. His gospel will be preached to the entire world. We know that. It continues to be preached and it will be preached. And the promise that Christ gave, our minds can be settled. In John 16, it says, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. We believe that. We know that. God is sovereign. He's in control, and he has not abandoned us. He has sent his son to save us. He has sent his son to adopt us and to forgive us. He has sent his spirit to empower us and to walk with us and intercede for us. He created the church to reveal Christ to the world and for his love to be made known among us. We need not worry or stress over what humanity may pursue. For we come with the message of Christ and his love to counter the greed, the violence and the evil and show them a more excellent way. We have a mission and a calling by God, our creator, to lead us and show us the way. Find your calling, then fulfill it. Know that God is sovereign. Know he's in control. Know that he will fulfill his will 
and accomplish all that he desires. One of the words in scripture that helps us to understand and see that God is sovereign is the word rock. In Psalm 18, we read, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. In Psalm 27, we read, For in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. He will take me from the uncertainty and the mud and the mire of this world, and he'll place me on the certainty and the foundation of his word and his truth and his love. God is secure, certain, and strong. A rock in nature, if you were to look at a big boulder, is seen as strong and movable and long-lasting. However, in nature, we also know that rocks in time wear down and wither due to the elements of weather and erosion. But God does not erode away. God does not wither away. There is no element in this universe that makes God wear down. He is God. He's the rock that does not erode. He is the rock that is eternal, true, and certain. This rock cannot be broken down, for God does not break down. We see that he is sovereign as he rules on high. He is exalted. He is Lord. He is always sovereign. We read of God's promise in Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. I will be honored by every nation. I will be honored throughout the world. God will do this. Be still, be at peace, be calm. No, he is in control. This is the word of God speaking as the world lags behind. The certainty of God is found in his word for God does not lie. The sovereignty of God is revealed in who God is and what he has said. I challenge you today. Trust God's word. Trust it. Trust him for he's sovereign. He does not break down. He does not erode away. Paul wrote the letter to the Romans to explain clearly the gospel that he has been preaching for a few decades now in his life. Uh, Paul, when he wrote this letter, had already planted several churches. Thousands, maybe even tens of thousands had come to Christ uh, through the preaching. Paul was accused by his critics, though, that the gospel he was preaching uh, promoted people to do evil so good may come about. He called this a slanderous report. This is a typical accusation or can be a typical accusation when grace is taught. You see, there are sinners who are wicked sinners, who are bad people, but they're forgiven of God. Isn't that what makes grace so wonderful? In chapter 6, verse 1, He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? That was one of the accusations that Paul was accused of. Keep sinning more and more sin so the grace may increase. That's what he was accused of teaching. But he's saying, why should I keep sinning? If I found righteousness and freedom in Christ, I don't need to keep sinning. I've been set free from it. And as I said before, I can... I can sin without anyone's help. I know I don't need to go to anyone to sin. Okay, I can do that all by myself. If I want help to be free from sin, I need help. (laughs) I need to go to God help me because I have no power over it. And so that was his accusations. 
that some of his critics accused him of. Paul wrote this letter to show the world, to the, the Christian world, to Rome and to all who will read this letter that the gospel is the promise of God that it has come into the world. We, it, it was found in the Word. It was found in the Old Testament. It was fully revealed in Christ. It's fully revealed by the power of the Holy Spirit, this gospel. The gospel is freedom from sin and the Christ life to live. It is forgiveness of sins. It is adoption into the family of God. It is holiness, righteousness, and hope. It is life itself, the gospel. The gospel is Christ walking among us, removing the despair of the unfulfilled law. It is Christ healing our brokenness. As Paul wrote in 3.21 and 22, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. The gospel is an invitation for you to receive his love, and for you to love him back. The righteousness of God is offered to all humanity by simply putting your faith in Christ. Because of Christ, you're now living according to the original design God created you to be. When you receive Christ, you're living out God's design. Early in Romans 1, Paul gave what we call the thesis statement of his letter. Romans 1, 16 and 17. It says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Amen, indeed. And, you know, when we read these words, we notice that God has revealed righteousness He has unleashed this revelation of righteousness that we can receive. Now, in the very next verse, it's interesting. In 118, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed. So we have two revelations. Either receive the wrath of God or you see the righteousness of God. Why do we receive the wrath of God is because we are already unrighteous. And let me tell you, we can do all we can to try to make ourselves righteous and we will just spiral downward. And that's what you read in chapter one, how this... We call it just spirals down into worse and worse. They're trying to get better and better, but they're getting worse and worse and worse. They can't do it. Even the law given to the Israelite people could not find righteousness, only self-righteousness. The problem is the human heart. We need a new heart for the foundation of our humanity is corrupted beyond repair. God gives us a new heart when we come to God in Christ through faith. He brings us up out of the depths of our sinful human nature and he brings us into his presence. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are a co-heir of Christ, an heir of God. And then you can now call, because of Christ, God, you are Abba, Father. You get to sit on his lap. He invites you to sit on his lap. You can live freely and truly. The promise of John 10.10 is that God promised the abundant life. We can now have it in Christ. Trust his word. In Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, if you want to turn there, it says, What then? Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then, if some did not believe, their unbelief will nullify the faithfulness of God? Will it? Of course, he always says, may it never be. Absolutely not. 
Paul knew that the gospel has always been for the whole world. Christ is for the whole world. Scripture attests of this, that the world will receive the gospel. And he will demonstrate this, especially in chapter 10, how the gospel is seen in the Old Testament and how it was to be unleashed to the whole world. But he also knows that the Jewish people were entrusted with the oracles of God. What does that mean? It's the word of God. They were given the word of God. Did God then suddenly abandon his people? What should we mean? What would that mean if he did? Did God say, well, I tried with the Jewish people. Now I'll try with this group, you know. In Romans 8, 38, 39, that very beautiful verses there that we saw last week, what will separate us from the love of God? You know, nothing. And of course, he says nothing in height, nor death, nor this, nor that, you know. And, and as he's writing this letter, he's in the back of his mind, he's thinking to himself, but what about the Jewish people? Did God's love somehow cease for them? Was God's love separated from them? Because if it was, then how secure is God's love for us if he stopped loving them? The height or depth of the gospel is God's love coming to the point of knowing his love and living it out. And what Paul saw as he planted the churches is the rebellion of his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. His internet connection was lagging, but the word of God was breaking through and speaking. Did God abandon his people? As he would say, may it never be. Absolutely not. There is no way he did. This is why we trust his word. Trust his word. Not the uncertainty of of this evil age. Not because of unbelief in people's heart. Not because of attitude that others may have. Because his word is true. So number one, God is sovereign over rebellion. Let's look at uh, uh, Romans 9, start with verse 1. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoptions as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is overall God-blessed forever. Amen. This is where Paul actually calls Christ a God. Christ who is God, blessed forever. Amen. As you read this letter, we can sum it up in one way. God's love will prevail over stubborn and rebellious hearts. God's mercy will break through. God will get his way. God's love will break through the darkness. As Paul thought of his family, his Jewish family, his kinsmen, his heart broke and his heart was heavy for them. He begins this chapter by saying the motivation of his heart. He's not lying. I am not lying. He said, I want to be very clear about that. I'm not lying. My conscience is clear. Why did he feel he needed to say that his conscience was clear? I'm not lying. Uh, Because what he was about to say and the staggering statement that he was about to make. For one thing, he saw his brethren, his Jewish brethren, as lost, dying, and unforgiven, having rejected Christ. He saw them straining for righteousness that they could never attain. Then he makes that staggering statement, verse 3, For I wish I could, I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, that God would reject me and save them. He, Paul actually is putting himself in a Christ position. 
a Christ-like position. Christ was accursed to save us. Christ took our sins so we could be saved. Christ gave up his position to die a barbaric death on the cross, taking our shame, our sin, and our brokenness. He did this because of his amazing love that he has for you and me. Paul saw his brother with great love and it burdened him. You have to realize that the Jewish people had been harsh toward Paul. Uh, Of all the persecution that Paul had endured throughout his missionary journeys and, and planting of churches, it mostly came from his fellow brethren, the Jewish people. Now, in peacemaking that uh, John and Kimberly teach a lot, we have what is called the slippery slope. Should be a picture of it there. The slippery slope describes what happens when conflict takes place. You know, if you are in conflict, how does conflict begin? You know, what is the meaning of conflict? It's when desires are unmet and you don't get what you you expected or assumed you thought you should get. We may blame others for not meeting what we needed, or we blame God because he did not come through in our minds. When you are in conflict with someone, there are usually or typically two responses. You'll either fight or you'll flee. Fight, flee or flight, or fight. I can't remember. Fight or flight. There we go. (laughs) If you flee, you just run away from the person. If you fight, you attack the person Typically, both times, the relationship is destroyed. Well, what's in the middle? Reconciliation. What are the odds? What, you know, excuse me. We are at odds with God. We are in conflict with God. God did not flee from us, and God did not fight us. Instead, he sent Christ to us. In 2 Corinthians, we read, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word reconciliation. It's beautiful how we are given the ministry of reconciliation and the message, the word of reconciliation. In conflict, when the fight or flight response takes place, you're doing what you can to remove the person from a relationship. You believe you will have peace. But remember, there is no justice without, or there's no peace without justice. God did not seek to destroy the relationship that did not exist with us, but instead he created a new one with Christ. Paul, as he saw his Jewish brethren, he could have either attacked them or fled from them. At times he probably did, both. But as we read here, he he had a deep grief for them. He had a deep heaviness, a heavy heart for his Jewish brethren. When we read this, we realize that he was not wanting to destroy the relationship, but create a new one in Christ. We are to trust God in his word to seek reconciliation. So number one, seek reconciliation. Paul saw his brethren and he had a Christ-like affection toward them. He did not want his relationship with his Jewish brethren ruined, but healed and reconciled. The gospel is the best way for reconciliation to happen. The gospel is built on the foundation of reconciliation. What is reconciliation is God's love for you and me. God's love drives us toward reconciliation. Look at what the gospel will do. Like in in Ephesians, it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one man and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, 
which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by having by it having put to death the enmity. The gospel is bringing about the unity between uh, the Jew and the Gentile, and us and God. It is reconciling us. The gospel breaks through conflicts, hard hearts, and brings healing to difficult situations. The gospel has the power to bring Jew and Gentile together to create a new people of God that is made up of Jew and Gentile. It is the cross that heals the breach. Paul, with his this great heartache that he had, and he saw his Jewish brethren, his brothers and sisters, he longed for them to know Christ. Paul is a Jewish man. He saw what the Jewish people were given by God. And he makes a list here that God truly did bless them. Look at this list that he gives. He says adoptions of sons, glory of God, the covenant, the law, the temple service, the promise of the patriarchs, and eventually Christ. Here he say, look at what they have received. Look at how God has blessed them with his presence and his revelation and how he has loved them. Christ has come to from the Jewish people it was the Jewish people and, and from the Jewish people came uh, Christ. It was God's intention to bring Christ up. From Israel, Christ is God, as Paul explains. The God of Israel came to live among them and walked among them. He died for them. He loved them. Even if they rejected him, he still loved them. God acts in accordance to his love. Paul wanted reconciliation, not separation. And I I pray that we have a burden for our, 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 our brothers and sisters in this world. We hurt for them and cry out to God for them and say, God, I'm grieving for this person, this lost person. Did you know you can trust God's word when you're dealing with conflict? May we all have the affection of Christ and long for the lost to find peace with God and each other. Number two, God is sovereign in promise. Let's look at verses six through eight of Romans nine. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they children because they're Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Now, I may have said this in the past. There is a message preached by the culture, and it is spoken in every venue by the influential and the powerful. And they have the bully pulpit. Their message usually says things like, we need to be compassionate. This does not uphold our values. We need to be inclusive. Uh, Diversity, equity, inclusion, DEI. What they're really teaching you is hate and not love. This message is one that will teach you who all will listen to hate one another. They will pit one group against another group and say to each other, hate each other. This message breeds conflict, not reconciliation. This message creates a self-righteous attitude, not godliness. This message does not preach peace, but anxiety. This message will make you look over your shoulder and trigger you to be angry and look to fight other people. The gospel message cannot be counterfeited, and that's what they're trying to do, counterfeit the message of Christ. But there is no gospel without Christ. There is no gospel without the cross. There is no reconciliation and compassion 
without the act of God. Try as culture might, only war it will produce. This is why we need to show the world God's amazing love in a more excellent way. Paul knew that the human nature, knew human nature would, and sin would compel him to seek division among his brothers. It's very easy to want to pit each other against another group. Christians against the world. Christians against all these others. We don't need to do that. We know that they're lost just like we were. Why pit ourselves against others? Show them who God is. And Paul knew that the human nature and sin would, sin would compel him to seek division among his brothers. He didn't want that. Instead, he wanted the grace of God to be made known and revealed to all men and women, Jew and Gentile alike. Because the gospel is that powerful. We can trust God to keep his word and we can trust it every day. So number one, God does not fail. You know, as Paul looked at the theological problem, if you will, of Israel, he, uh, he wonders out loud, has God's word failed? I mean, we know the message of society will fail, but has God's word failed? What he means by this is that God chose Israel, they're his people. Why are they not all in? Did, did God fail in some way? Did his love fail? It's interesting that Paul didn't say that, well, Israel has always been stubborn, therefore. Well, eventually, I guess he'll get around to saying something similar. He really goes in a different direction. Instead, he points us toward Abraham. God called Abraham to follow him. Abraham worshiped God. God was Abraham's God. Because Abraham obeyed, he was now living in the promise that God had given him. But not everyone who was born from Abraham was under the promise, under the blessing. In fact, only Isaac was born under the promise, not Ishmael. Why is that? Because his, you know, if you look at Isaac's birth, you realize that was a supernatural birth. <laughs> a nine-year-old woman given birth, way past childbearing years. She was barren to begin with. And it shows you that the promise of God could not be fulfilled by natural means. God had to give this promise in order for us to know it. The, it's similar to what you see of the virgin birth with Christ. It had to be given to us. Christ had to be given to us. We could not, no one could create Christ. The promise is given to one child of each patriarch until Jacob. God promised Abraham, then he promised Isaac, and then Jacob. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau was not given the promise, but Jacob was. Jacob then had 12 sons. Now, Jacob tried to give the promise to Joseph, but God would have none of that. But God gave the promise to all 12 sons. The 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. But not all Israel is saved. It's, not, it's, the only, it's the ones that God gives the promise. The promise must be received by faith. And what we're seeing here, and it's really important that we understand, as Paul's making this argument, is that biology, yes, it's important to some degree in terms of the lineage, but it's not what saves you. Biology does not save you. You must receive it by faith. When John the Baptist arrived on the scene, baptizing the people, he said this in Luke, Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. You, you think that just because you can prove your lineage that somehow, oh, well, <laughs> come on in. Over the centuries, a false message began to develop within the people of God, our, bio our biology, our lineage gets us into the kingdom of God. No, not faith, 
What does this create? It creates division. Well, you're not part of us, therefore you're out. Since you're not of us, you're evil. It is faith in God, not the lineage. It is God's word, not biology, that gets you in. This is why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And that interesting statement, what does he say? Well, how can I enter my mother's womb? Because in his mind, he's thinking, I just have to be born to Jewish family, and I'm in. And God says, no, faith. It's always faith. It is the children of the promise of faith that belongs to God's kingdom. God does love you. His word is true. His promises are certain. And you can trust his word. Number three, God's sovereign is in grace. God is sovereign in grace. Let's look at verses 9 through 13. For this is the word of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice could st- would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. In Galatians we read this verse, if you belong, and if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Notice that we become Abraham's descendants by having faith in Christ. Now, now I, I say that biology was not the means by which you enter the kingdom of God. You certainly cannot be born just naturally into the kingdom. John 1 tells us that. No one is born saved. No one is born welcomed by God because sin reigns in our hearts. The only way to find salvation is by God's grace and mercy. We are all here today worshiping God because of his mercy. Because of his grace. We're all here today because of the cross. In Psalm 51, we read this. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In Psalm uh, 34, it says, The Lord is near to to the brokenhearted and save those who are contrite in spirit. Our DNA is not what God looks at. He looks at our heart. But God must change our heart. God must redeem us. In Paul's argument here, he's showing that biology and genealogy alone is not adequate to save you. But that doesn't mean the Jewish lineage was, was bad. Remember, they received all of this revelation. They received all of the, the word of God. The beauty of that is amazing. He did create his people. He made, and these people were made of families and tribes. They have this history, and they could all connect it back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God set them apart from the world to reveal his mercy, his word through them. He set apart the Levites so they could serve as his priests and the sons of Aaron to serve as the high priest. The lineage of these men had to be known so they could continue the service as high priest. And to serve in the tabernacle and temple. But Paul knew the importance of lineage of the people, particularly before the time of Christ, to persevere the sanctity of the service of God. But Paul wanted to point out that very important point in verse 9. For this is the word of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. God created from one couple of people 
through uh, Abraham, I, Abraham, Sarah, and then from him, Isaac. It was God who did it, and it was God who will preserve it. So number one, God will make it happen. In verse 9, Paul reminded the church, Isaac was born because God willed it, even when it was physically impossible for Sarah to have a child. She had been barren all her life, and by the time God said what we read about in verse 9, she was well past childbearing years. Then when Isaac married Rebekah, it's interesting, she too was barren. We have two barren women, Sarah and Rebekah, who are mothers to millions and millions of descendants. God heard the prayer of Isaac and opened her womb, and she became pregnant with twins. She's the mother to Jacob and Esau. Where will the promise of God that he gave Abraham go next? Esau or Jacob? Esau is the firstborn. Isaac is Abraham's uh, secondborn. God chose Isaac, then he chose Jacob. But why Jacob? We're told very clearly in verse 11, for though the twins were not yet born, had not done anything good or bad, so that the God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Why Jacob? You know what Jacob means? It means hill grabber. It means deceiver. You know, there's an interesting verse in uh, John chapter 1, if I can find it here real quick. Uh, When he sees Nathanael, and he says, Nathaniel says, can anything good come from out of Nazareth? People sit and Philip says, we'll come and see. And then he, Jesus says, saw Nathaniel coming to him. He says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. And you can almost read like, behold, a Jacob. I mean, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no de- Jacob. Because it was known as that word kind of can mean hill grabber deceit. And so if you look at Jacob and Esau, how did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Did he flip a coin? Well, got it. He's in. You know, and we see that Jacob was a deceiver. He deceived his brother. He deceived his father. And then he was deceived by his uncle. And we're told, though, that God did not look into the future and through the corridors of time say, oh, I choose Jacob. We don't know how he chose him. If he looked at the hearts to make a decision, then he would choose no one for we're all sinners. But instead, he chose him according, as we read here, according to his purposes, God is sovereign. He can make the decision. He's the creator. We're simply stewards of this earth. Nothing really belongs to us. We simply use what we hear on earth. We simply walk through this earth. We're visitors. God is the one who owns the earth. He owns the universe. He's Lord and God. He gives us an opportunity because of his mercy and grace. He gives us an opportunity to know and follow him. He makes a decision based on his sovereign will. I don't know what that, how he made those decisions. He doesn't tell us how. God made his people and he drew out of his people those who would follow him. Not everyone who is of Israel are God's people. And he makes this plain in chapter 9. Only those who are called by God. It is God directing the movement of his people that he began to bring unto us what we so desperately need, which is Christ. Now, Paul saw the sovereignty of God in the statement in verse 13. It says, Jacob I loved And Esau hated. This is stated in Malachi chapter 1. This is the context of the question that people ask. Now, if you read Malachi 1, remember they asked, God says, Jacob, I love, and Esau, I hated. That came as as a result of God answering a question. How have you loved us, God? 
they doubted his love. How have you loved us? His love is seen in his favor and calling. Because he called you, he loved you. In Malachi 1, the people could not see God's love. They were denying his love. But God says, well, look at Esau. The land where they once lived lies in ruins. They have no future. There's no future for those who are not called of God. But there's a future for those whom God has chosen. God is the one who will make the future happen. He will make your future secure and your present day certain. You trust his word. It's God's doing, not yours and not mine. It's God directing the future, directing the moment. We look to him for what he wants, not what I want. God's love did not fail because all Israel did not follow Christ. Rather, God's love is proven by how his will is accomplished in his way. The hope of our lives in the future does not rest on the strength of man, but on the power of God's love. And God has unleashed his love among us. He has unleashed his love to this world. And God is the one who opens the eyes. And I pray all man's eyes be opened to the love of God. Trust God and his word. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you that you're sovereignly in control. I praise you that you are creator of heaven and earth. I give you praise knowing that you have brought reconciliation to us. I pray that we will be reconciled to each other, that we will unleash your love to those around us. 